I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. We have just concluded our long study uh, through the book of Genesis, uh, about four years. You will remember the encouraging, uh, concluding statements that Joseph gave to the children of Israel. They are found in the final verses of the book of Genesis. He says to them, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to which, to the land to which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in these words, Joseph encouraged the people of God with this paraphrased. No matter what this world looks like, no matter who sits on the throne, no matter what happens here in Egypt, God will surely visit you and bring you home to the land of promise. Praise be to God for those encouraging words. I believe that these final words of encouragement also apply to you and me here today. Uh, the words of Joseph are much like the words of our Lord in the final book of the Bible. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his word to his work shall be. We could say almost the same thing. No matter what this world looks like, Jesus says to us. No matter who sits in the White House. No matter what happens here in America. Or wherever you are. God will surely visit you. And bring you home. As we wait. For our final deliverance. Just as Israel waited for their final deliverance, for their deliverer to come, what should we do? What must we do as we wait? What encouragements, if any, does God in his word give to the believer as we wait for that blessed day? I believe there are many. But for the next few weeks, I would like to, with God's help, teach a short series entitled Encouragements While We Wait. Encouragements While We Wait. And we will use the commands and encouragements from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Church of Thessalonica. Specifically, with God's help, we will consider the fifth and final chapter of the first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, if you would, why don't you turn there now and we'll stand in just a few moments and read from there. But as you're turning to First Thessalonians, one of the I'll give you just a little bit of a context of the book of Thessalonians. One of the primary purposes of the of Paul's writing to the church of Thessalonica is to make sure that they were living in the real world. That may sound strange. They were living in the real world, meaning this. Paul wants the church to live in the world in which the Lord Jesus Christ died. The world in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to. After the resurrection, Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. But Christ has promised that he shall return. Therefore, Paul calls the church, all of the church... To live in that reality. The good news of the promised return of Christ is how we all should live. And while we wait, and while they waited for that blessed return of Christ, Paul gives commands and encouragements to the church while we wait. The church of Thessalonica has experienced persecution because of their faith in Christ. But they have been, they have endured the persecution and they have been commended by Paul for their perseverance and endurance. Just a side note, because scripture is inspired by God the Holy Spirit, to be commended by Paul is to be commended by God himself. 
So then, with this kind of short little, uh, at least background, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but we will read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 to get a context here. Let's stand now for the reading of God's holy inspired word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this will take us into chapter 5, verses 13 into chapter 5, okay? Let's read this together. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For we have, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive remain and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Christ is going to return, right? Uh, chapter 5 now, verse 1. Uh, we, we will expound these verses in chapter 4 when we get to the book of Revelation. Chapter 5. Now, as the times, as to the times and epochs, or times and seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as the helmet, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. This is God's holy inspired word. Please be seated. Uh, this morning, with God's help, we will consider uh, three points, three points this morning. Number one, aware. Number one, aware. Verse two, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Another version says you are fully Aware. Brothers and sisters, what was it that the Thessalonians were fully aware of? Paul is clear. The church was fully aware that the return of Christ would be sudden and final. Paul describes this awareness as being fully informed or fully aware, listen to this, of times and seasons. You know well, or you know full well, the times and the seasons. He says in verse 1, You don't need anything to be written to you concerning the time and seasons of the return of Christ. Your Bible may say epochs, seasons. Why? Why did they not need anything to be written to them concerning the times and seasons? Because they were fully aware. They had full understanding. Uh, notice that Paul uses two metaphors to explain the fact that they know the times and the seasons. The first metaphor is one of a thief 
in the Night. You've heard that before. You've even maybe seen the movie back in the 80s. Thief in the Night. Uh, the other metaphor is that of a woman of having labor pains just before birth. We know uh, all about that in this church, don't we? Christ will return suddenly like a thief in the night. Christ will appear suddenly like a woman who feels it's time to give birth. These metaphors are appropriate. First, because thieves, they don't make appointments when they come to rob your homes. They show up when you least expect them. Some of us have known the sad reality of of having our homes uh, invaded or robbed. If we had known when they were coming, what would we have done? We might have had a shotgun pointing right at the door as soon as they walked in. Some of us may have called the police ahead of time. We would have, uh, if we had known when they were coming, we would have made preparations, appropriate preparations for that visit. Uh, Paul also uses labor pains of a pregnant woman. And labor pains also is appropriate because uh, the woman has this idea that it's at any time. And then all of a sudden, it's time to go. We need to go now. And this process of labor, these contractions, they lead to something that is uh, fulfilling. Uh, the, the labor and the contractions lead to deliverance of a baby. Yeah, labor brings forth a child. So it is with the return of Christ. Christ will return and bring all things to consummation. We are feeling labor pains now. And as Christ, when Christ returns, it will be the fullness of what he has promised. Paul says that the church is sufficiently aware of this fact. They didn't need anyone to write to them any more information about this. They were not unaware. They were fully aware. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I, I wonder if Paul were to write to the church at RBC. Would he say to us, you don't need any more instructions on this matter because you are fully aware that the return of Christ will be sudden. Well, let me ask you, are you fully aware? Do you know full well that Christ, when he returns, it will be a sudden return? Why was the church of Thessalonica so aware? Why didn't they need anyone to teach them on this matter concerning the suddenness of the return of Christ? Let's go to a passage in Matthew chapter 24. The reason why they didn't need anyone to teach them is because the teachings of Paul come directly from the teachings of Christ. Matthew chapter 24. And verse 36. Matthew 24 and verse 36. The word of the Lord reads, Christ speaking, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone for the coming of the son of man. Listen to this will be just like the days of Noah for in the days, those days before the flood, there was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be, uh, so will this, the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one left. Therefore, be alert. For you do not know which day the Lord is coming. But be sure of this. That if the head of the house had known, listen to this, at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Verse 45. Who then is faithful and sensible slave? Uh, Who is the who is then the faithful and sensible slave? whom his master put in charge of the household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing what doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. 
But if the evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, we see in these verses the same teachings, uh, virtually the same metaphors, uh, virtually the same illustrations and the same content. Christ, like Paul, is speaking about the suddenness of his return. The fact that no one knows the day and no one knows the hour. And he uses this metaphor of night and day, of thieves breaking in and sleeping. Listen to this one, of sleeping and being awake. Why didn't the Thessalonians need to be taught more on this issue of the suddenness of the, of the return of Christ? Because Paul is drawing his teaching from the teachings of Christ. They knew full well what Paul was teaching because the disciples taught the church. And Paul is then reissuing to them what Christ has already taught. He is reminding the church of what Christ has said. Paul, an apostle of Christ. And remember this, that the church is built on the foundation of Christ and his apostles. Paul did not conjure up these teachings. They're not from his own mind. He learned them from Christ. And we learn from Paul through Christ. Paul is an apostle of Christ. Christ is teaching us and establishes his church through his apostles. When we hear Christ through the teachings of the apostles, we are hearing Christ. We learn his commands through them. He commissioned them to go to teach us all that he commanded. Brothers and sisters, this should reinforce, listen to this carefully, this should reinforce our necessity, the urgency for us to not forsake the assembling of the saints. We must be here. Imagine this. When the church of Thessalonica received a letter from Paul, they all came. They all listened. And when they came and listened, they did not have someone say to them, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. They were hearing an entire letter. Some of us can barely stand 11 verses. They were hearing an entire letter being written or read to them. And as they were hearing this letter being read to them, they listened with all intent of heart and soul. They leaned into what the elder of the church was saying by way of Paul, the apostle. It's too easy for us today because we can hear this anytime, anywhere, any way we like. If I don't hear it, then I'll just catch the podcast. I'll hear it from someone else. Uh, maybe someone with an English or Scottish accent. It always sounds better there, that, that way. It, it, it is far too easy. Uh, they could not say, as Paul is saying, it will come like a thief in the night. It will come like a woman giving labor. They, they could not say, oh, yes. We read it here in the book of Matthew. No, they would recall the apostles that came that said, the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry said that when he returns, it will be like a thief in the night. And they all listened and they took to heart all of the things that were coming from the pulpits. They listened as if their lives depended upon it. They were fully aware. They knew full well. When the church gathered, they were there. When the church said, uh, we will meet on the Lord's day at such and such a time, we'll be hearing from the Apostle Paul this morning. They were all there. Paul reinforces, reinforces uh, the teachings of Christ to the church. Dear saints, we... I pray are aware. For if you are not aware, then you must beware. If you are not aware, then you must beware. The words sound close, 
But they're not the same. Paul was confident that the church was informed. That they were fully aware of times and seasons. They were aware of the eminence of the return of Christ. They, they knew, listen to these two words, times and seasons. What does it mean to know times and seasons? Again, we've had uh, in our church two mamas who have delivered babies and there is yet one to go. These women, they are aware that the, at least for most women, not Dinah, they are aware that the, the usual time of delivering is nine months. They know the times and they know the seasons. What if one of these women or one of you, Lord willing, were pregnant, one of you women at least, but you did not know the times? What if there was no time frame for when a baby was normally born? You just, you knew you were pregnant. You just didn't know when you were going to deliver. And there were no warning signs. It just happened. You were pregnant and it could happen at one week. Imagine. It could happen at, uh, for some women, God forbid, two years. But there were no signs. The family knows the time. They are pregnant. But they don't know the season. When pregnancy will come to completion. Uh, what if you thought pregnancy ended at twelve, the 12 month mark? But then you learned it actually happens at the nine month mark. You need to know not just the time, but also the season. What is the significance of this? Well, farmers, they know the weeks and the months. But it would do them no good. If they did not know when was the right season for sowing and reaping. Uh, they know when to sow, but they don't really know when to reap. Uh, one can know the times, but if they don't know the seasons, their knowledge is worthless. You can acknowledge, I know Christ will return one day, but completely live oblivious in your lives, being ready for his return. Go to those at Martin Luther King Park. They will all, for the most part, readily, readily acknowledge Christ. Uh, most of them will readily acknowledge Christ will return. But they don't live fully aware that Christ will return. What about you? Paul is saying to the church, you know what time it is. And you know what this means. Remember, the scriptures tell us that these are the last days. John tells us that this is the last hour. From the moment that Christ said it is finished, it has been the last hour. Paul tells the church to interpret the times and the seasons. And when you do or, or when you do, you will perceive that Christ is returning and we will be prepared daily to meet him. You may be prepared on the Lord's Day. Some of us not. Are you prepared on Monday for the return of the Lord? Some will say peace and security. Christ, uh, the church has been saying Christ will return for 2,000 years. And where is his return? Christ said it's just like the people in the days of Noah. Noah for 100 years was a minister of righteousness. Calling people to repent. Calling people to turn from their sin because judgment from God was coming. But they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, living life as if Christ or judgment was not coming. Noah preached righteousness of impending and impending judgment. The people, people countered his message with peace, security. And then suddenly judgment comes upon them. Paul says that when the destruction, the day of destruction comes in verse three, there will be no escape. You will remember the, the parable of the ten virgins. Five had oil in their lamps so that they could watch and wait for the bridegroom to return. Five did not have oil in their lamps. They did not watch. They did not wait. And when the bridegroom came, they were excluded and shut out from the wedding feast. They knew the times, but they didn't know the seasons. 
They did not interpret them sufficiently to know what to do. I know he's coming. What do I do? I know he's coming. What must I do? The pregnant woman knows to be ready. At the nine month mark, the farmer knows when to sow and when to reap. So Paul says to the church, you know that Christ will return. And you Thessalonians, you're ready. You're ready for his return. We must be aware or we must beware. There are everlasting and eternal consequences for those who do not prepare themselves. It's amazing to me, isn't it? What I'm speaking about is those persons that when you share the gospel with them, they say, I know, but I'm just not ready. It's times and seasons. I know, but just not now. Times and seasons. I know he will return, but you're not ready. And you think you have time to get ready. Christ and Paul is saying, you won't even expect it when it happens. The return of Christ will be sudden and inescapable destruction will be for those who are not ready. Dear ones, there is a time and it can happen at any moment for Christ to return. Think about this. If we were aware of cataclysm coming our way, a cataclysm that would impact us and our family and our lives, what would you do? If you knew that uh, one of the dams nearby broke and that water was coming to flood this valley, what would you do? You might, you might say, I've got to go and leave now. You would make all preparations to preserve you, your family, and your own goods from this cataclysm. Brothers and sisters, we are told that the return of Christ is coming. That he is coming to judge the living and the dead. To raise all and judge all. What is your preparation then? What about your life says that you are ready? You know the times and you know the seasons. Are we even alarmed? Are we even alarmed when a message like this is going forth? Are we more interested in scores on the ball games, details at our jobs, uh, plans for the parties, and the like? You know the times. But do you know the seasons? It's why I said a moment ago, when the church of Thessalonica, or the church of Colossae, or whatever church, when they gathered, they didn't have the word of God. So when God's word went forth, they listened with all of their might. We are, we don't do that today, do we? We are so distracted by so many things. Brothers and sisters, you know the times and you know the seasons. You are aware, and if you are not, then you must beware. Number two, uh, armed. Verse four. Number one, uh, aware. Number two, armed. Verse four. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. That the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of the light. And sons of day. We are not of the night. Nor of the darkness. Paul begins to transition his commands now. To exhortations to the church of Thessalonica. And Paul uses four overlapping metaphors. He has spoken of a pregnant woman and of a thief. Now listen to this. Now Paul speaks of darkness and light. Night and day. Asleep and awake. Drunk and sober. These are all overlapping in that they essentially say the same things. Paul says, you are not in darkness for that day, the day of the Lord, to surprise you like a thief. Most thieves, they rob in the nighttime. Paul says, you don't live in the night. You live in the day. So the thief can't come and steal from you. You're fully aware. You are a child of the light. You are children of the day. All same things. They are all communicating things that Paul wants us. Uh, Paul, things that Paul tells us in verse 8 that he wants us to do. 
And they are this. Be awake. Be sober. Be alert. You are armed. What does it mean ultimately to be sober? Uh, To be of the day. To be of the light. What does it mean? It means this, saints. Paul's not necessarily speaking about drunkenness in the way that we understand drunkenness. It means, he's using metaphors, it means to gird ourselves, to arm ourselves with faith, love, and hope. You are armed with faith, with hope, and with love. Paul uses the metaphor of God, uh, I'm sorry, Paul uses the armor of God, a metaphor that's found in Ephesians 6, uh, and this time it's a little bit different because it's applied differently, and it can be applied in a variety of ways. What is an armor? An armor is meant to uh, resist, to protect, uh, to prevent, and to fight. Clearly, there is a battle. And your weapons are faith, hope, and love. They are the arms that God gives you in this struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil to keep you until the return of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us consider this metaphor for a moment. Light and sobriety. Uh, Being awake and being awake. They are all metaphors for, listen to this, clear thinking and knowledge. Paul's not saying, don't drink beer, don't drink alcohol. He's not necessarily saying that. He's saying, be sober-minded. Be sober in your thoughts, in your knowledge. Be clear. It is for holiness and truth that you must be clear-minded. Darkness and drunkenness are metaphors for sin and falsehood. The person of the day, the person of the light, knows the truth and lives by it. The person of the night, the person of darkness, the person who is drunk and asleep, they know nothing and they live according to their ignorance. The one who is asleep is unaware of what's going on around him. So then Paul it's calling the church to the life of to a life of knowledge and holiness as we wait for the return of Christ don't be drunk don't be asleep don't be oblivious to all the things that are going on around you and act like it's just going to continue like this forever wake up christ is going to return live in the light of his word and walk in holiness Because if you don't, then you must beware of the return of Christ. How can we live this way as we wait for the return of Christ? I I think one of the ways is that, that we don't confuse pleasure and joy. Don't confuse pleasure and joy. One thing that obscures our vision as we wait... One thing that obscures and darkens our knowledge as we wait for Christ that that leads us away from holiness, that draws us into temptation, is confusing pleasure with joy. Brothers and sisters, do you know that sin can easily entangle? Sin can easily ensnare you. But let's be clear about something. God has given all of his creatures things in this life that are pleasurable. Relationships that you have. I love seeing each of you share camaraderie with one another. The men uh, share such wonderful camaraderie with one another in our text messages, especially. Food. We love food. We're going to have a fellowship meal today. Drink. Drink. God has given us food and drink for pleasure. Uh, Marital intimacy. God has given to us for our pleasure. Possessions. Some of you have things that you really enjoy. And more. Hobbies. Activities. 
different arts and crafts some of you enjoy. Baking, some of you really enjoy. God has given us these things, and they do truly involve pleasure. But within those things, God's law has set limitations to the extent in which we must we participate in those things. But we don't find lasting happiness and joy and fullness in those things. God gives us his law to provide boundaries within those things that he has given to us to enjoy. When we enjoy what God has given to us within the boundaries that God has given to us for, they are pleasurable, they're, they're good, they're holy, and they're not to be rejected. But when we allow ourselves to be tempted beyond the boundary lines that God has given to us, when we are enticed to find satisfaction, lasting satisfaction in those things, then we commit great sin. And we confuse pleasure with joy. Brothers and sisters, the world hates God's boundaries, doesn't it? The world says, cross all the lines, forget God's law. The world does not want to live within the boundaries that God has set for the world concerning pleasures. The world crosses that line every single time. The world, the flesh and the devil, they seek to incite, entice you and I to cross the lines that God has set for us. And listen, the lines that God has made for us, they're for our good. Uh, they're for our protection. They're not to, to keep us or to hinder us. They are to protect us, to keep us safe. And these enemies, they tempt us to cross the boundary lines that God has set with them. God said, cursed are all those who do evil and teach others to do evil with them. And brothers and sisters, if we cross those boundary lines then we will be convinced, like the world, that there is true and lasting joy in marital goods or mar- marital relationships, in uh, these com- camaraderies that we have with one another, that there's lasting joy in them, that there's lasting joy in intimacy, that there's lasting joy in material goods. Let me ask you, Do you know anyone who has ever eaten themselves to lasting happiness? You've gone to buffets. You've seen how wide your eyes are when you are hungry walking into that buffet. And you see just how much joy and pleasure you're going to receive when you eat this and that and add a little more of this. And you put more on your plate than you can even eat so that at the very end, you're not really pleasured. You're more in pain. Why did I eat all? I thought eating all of these things was going to satisfy me. Instead, now I need to take a Prilosec or Tums to calm my acid reflux. Do you know anyone who has given in to the lust of their flesh to lasting happiness? Do you know anyone who has succeeded so much that they are lastingly satisfied in all that they have accomplished in their life. They may say that they're happy, but they're not satisfied. Why? Because the person, after their stomach has gone down and the acid has kind of burped its way out and they're all good, they'll be hungry the next day. They'll want something else again. The reason why there is no satisfaction in these things is because we always need more. We always want more. It's a pursuit of the next thing to to finally satisfy. Uh, My brother and I, but I'll take the guilt this morning, have been shoe collectors for years. Collecting different kinds of Jordans and so on and so forth. And I can remember I would chase after a shoe that I think, okay, after I get this one, it's going to be the last one. After this, I would always say, I retire. I'm going to hang it up after this one. And then I would chase after the shoe, finally get the shoe. And then after looking at it and taking a few pictures of it, laying in bed with it and kind of putting a blanket around it and snuggling with it. It would go back into the closet. 
And I'd be thinking, oh, there's another shoe coming out next month? Huh, let me start saving for that one. If we believe that these earthly things will satisfy us, then we are not living in the light and in holiness under God's law. We're drunk. We are asleep. We are not seeing and thinking clearly. If we think anything, let me say, and any person in this world will ever give you lasting satisfaction. My wife loves me, but I get on her nerves. My wife probably thinks I'm the best guy in all the world. Most of the time. Not all of the time. I can't even, thankfully, praise be to God, I can't satisfy her lastingly. The delights of this life, they give pleasure. There's no denial there. But if we set our hearts on them, if we depend upon them for satisfaction, as if they were the source of it, then we'll find very quickly that we are not satisfied. And satisfaction comes somewhere else and not in whatever the the target of our satisfaction was. If it's not Christ, the more you pursue them and pass the boundary lines of holiness, the more they hurt you. When you pass the boundary lines of gluttony, you'll get hurt. When you pass the boundary lines into darkness and immorality, you will get hurt. We think that there is lasting pleasure in those things. If we do, then we have believed a lie. Paul is telling the church, see clearly, think clearly, use the knowledge that you have been given to stay awake, to watch for the return of Christ. Don't enter the darkness and drunkenness of the world. Be armed against it. We enjoy food with thanksgiving. And if we do so, we give glory to God. We'll do that this afternoon for what he has given to us. Our flesh will be pleased, uh, has been pleased, and our hearts are joyful when we eat because of what God has given to us. That's a good thing. The same with drinks, the same with the marriage bed, uh, the same with possessions and success and the like. We enjoy these things with the boundaries that God has set. And if we do so, then we'll be pleased. And there's no sin in them. You can enjoy your drink. Drink to the glory of God. Do it within the confines of that God has made for you. Enjoy your food. Do it within the confines that God has made for you. Today, we're all going to be watching. Who's got three plates today? Are you walking within the boundary lines that God has made for you? Pastor Isaiah, and I don't mean to say this, but I'll, I'll take it for myself because uh, he often says it when we eat together. We'll say, why did we eat that much? I, I knew I should have stopped. Why did I keep going? Now I'm paying for it. If we forget God, his law, and what he has made for us, and we just want to please our flesh, then you need to ask yourself, has my flesh been satisfied? Has it ever been satisfied fully? No. My appetites always increase. I always want more. And it'll just increase. The, the more goods increase, the more mouths increase to eat them. The more you want, the more you get. And the more the flesh will take from you. If we seek satisfaction in God's approval, though, we will find it in holiness. We will find ourselves uh, satisfied. If, but if we want to, if we want our bodies to say to us, that's enough, they won't. They'll only want more. That's why holiness involves uh, self-control. You need to tell yourself, stop it. Enough. No more. Paul in uh, chapter four and verse four says the will of God for you is sanctification and for the church holiness. If you want to be of the of the light and of the day, thinking clearly, acting clearly, then you must have self-control. You must be smarter than your bodies. Don't confuse pleasure and joy. Who are we seeking to please? God. Or our flesh. Our flesh will never be satisfied in goods. But our souls will be satisfied in God.
and again, can I just say this also? There's pleasure in obedience. When we obey God, we also are are pleased because we have done what God has, has commanded us to do. There's satisfaction in knowing that you have obeyed God's commands. There's no peace when you know you have gone beyond God's lines, his boundaries that he's made for your good. No peace there. Our true joy comes when our hearts are Godward, when they are God-centered. The beauty and goodness and mercy of God is not only when we find satisfaction in obedience, but in obeying, He does not deny us those good pleasures that we desire. As we obey God, obeying God doesn't mean, well, that means I can't eat any of that food. Eat it! The glory of God! Just don't cross that line. That means I can't drink that. Drink it to the glory of God. Just don't cross that line. I can't have those shoes. I got shoes. I didn't sell them all. And I'm going to wear them because I enjoy them. No sin in that. I'm not going to wear them when I preach like some of these false preachers out there. But do it within the boundary lines that God has made for you. Listen to this and, and we'll go to our third and final point in a short one. Only insanity. Only darkness and drunkenness that inverts and perverts this saying that satisfaction comes in disobedience to God and a limitless involvement in pleasures of the flesh. Only insanity, only darkness says it's good to disobey God. It's good to pass those those lines. Arm yourselves. Don't confuse pleasure and joy. Also, let me say this, avoid profanity. Not profanity in the, the bad words that our culture consider, considers to be taboo. Not the, the, the N word, the F word, the Z word, the H word, the whatever word. None of that. Every culture has their own profane words. I hope you know that. Profanity is to take something holy, but treat it as common. That's profanity. To take something that is holy and treat it as profane. Now, the name of God used in a profane way is something that should never be done. But profanity refers to taking something holy and treating it as common. In Hebrews 12, 15, you don't need to turn there. Paul encouraged the Christians to finish well, maintain their profession, just as he called the church in Thessalonians to do. How were they able to do this? How can they see to it that they not fail to obtain the grace of God? Paul says in Hebrews, don't be immoral. Live an upright life. First Thessalonians 5, we are concerned with arming ourselves against the attacks of the devil in order to receive Christ in thankfulness. One of the things that we should do is make sure that there is no profanity among us, in us. We will be uh, more profane. Uh, We will be more prone to darkness to drunkenness, to sin, to the enticements of sin. If holy things become common to you, if holy things become just routine, we can profane become, we can be profane Christians when we come to worship. We sing the hymns, we say the amens, we take the notes, we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we brother and sister one another. But it's just only what we do. We just go through motions. We do all the, as Nacho Libre says, all the churchy things. Have the holy things of God become common to you, brothers and sisters? Are you profaning the name of God? Is there a distinction, a distinction between light and darkness? Day and night, awake and asleep. Are those lines being blurred because what God has called us, what God has called holy and for your good is really just whatever to you at this point. The preaching of God's word is holy and for your good. Do you care? Prayers that we pray together is holy and for your good. Do you care? The Lord's Supper, which will take in a few moments, hours, is for your good. Do you even care? You were baptized, Paul tells his, his, uh, 
hit the church. You were baptized. Do you even care? Is coming to church, you might as well just be hanging out with your friends and watching a game because there is no difference. You feel the same here as you do there. That person who believes that, who lives that way, is more susceptible to sin. Because these things are not holy to them. They're just whatever. If that kind of person does not see the distinction between darkness and light, between holy and profane or common, then they will walk into the darkness of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Don't be deceived. Wake up from your drunken stupor. The same metaphor. Wake up. Don't be deceived. The person who is drunk does not understand. Those of you who shared the gospel with those who are drunk, you, you very rarely go on with that conversation with a person who's drunk. You, you, you most often say, we'll just talk later. Why? Because they're not thinking clearly. They're drunk. Their minds will not be able to perceive the truth. We call them to escape the company of sinful people because if we give our time to those who hate God and His law, then we'll become just like them. We'll adjust to them just to, to, we'll adjust just like they have to the holy things of God and see them as just being common. The life of an unbeliever and all of their wickedness becomes normal. Just what they do and acceptable. I pray that when you come on the Lord's day, you're not just going through the motions. That you're seeing these things as being truly pleasurable. That's what we're attending to. Paul calls the church to wake up. Are you awake? Are you asleep this morning? Don't go on sinning. Paul says that he says this to our shame. Should you be ashamed? Have you been drunk? Have you been asleep? Are you ashamed of the company that you keep? Are you ashamed of the activities that you are participating in? The place that you go? The drunkenness and darkness that Paul is calling us away from. Are you walking in it? Is the light of God's holiness which shines in what he has called us to do. Is it not so bright anymore? Are the ordinances of God no longer unique and holy? Have they lost their luster? Well, let me say to you that when we come and we sing, we're not singing to the sky. We're singing to God. When we come and pray, we're not praying to the clouds. We're praying to God. We don't listen to pep talks when we come to the Lord's Day worship services. As Pastor Isaiah said in the morning, this is no man just giving a speech. This is the word of God. Uh, We don't take the bread and cup for a snack, your afternoon snack. We partake of the body and blood of Christ to feed our souls. Brothers and sisters, are you asleep? Do you need to be awoken from your drunkenness? Do you need to sober up with regard to the, the holy things of God? God has given us his day. He's hollowed it. He's made it holy. And he's given it to us for his glory and our good. Have the things that we do on this day or the day itself. Has it become profane to you? Look around. How we would love at least for one service for every person who calls himself a member of RBC to be here at the same time. Just once. Do you sing to God when you sing? When you pray, are you praying to God? When the word goes forth, are you listening to God's word? Not uh, not just some man. And listen, when we hear God's word, we don't wait for the entire world to shake as if, now that's deep. 
I've never heard that before. Pen, pencil, paper, do you I need to write that down. Now, that happens from time to time, I suppose. But truly and surely not every time. Uh, when you're hearing Lord's Day, what you're hearing Lord's Day after Lord's Day is eternal truth that is preparing your soul for glory. And brothers and sisters, we err from time to time, don't we? We preach God's word, but we don't do so perfectly every time, do we? Now, there are times when there are bits and pieces of a sermon that is maybe off. Maybe even, God forbid, but even unnecessary. Even, God forbid, this even more, but sometimes even weird. I used a weird example last week. My wife told me. And I concurred. I don't know why I said that. I told Pastor Isaiah, I was kind of, we were driving down the road and I had my head down. And he said, pick up your head, we're driving. Uh, I felt so bad about it. an example. I thought, it just, I didn't need to use that example. I did one in the morning and I did one in the evening. But are you listening when the word of God goes? Are you hungering for God's word? As we attempt to deliver it as purely as possible. If you're eager to listen, eager to pray, eager to hear, eager to eat God's word together with the people of God in God's house, then you can say, I am awake. You don't need to wake me up. I see the light. I am in the day. This is where I want to be. This is what I need. It is for my good. And I am again reminded of the gospel, my need for Christ, the sin that I need to put to death. And my mind is further renewed by the word of God. And yes, pastor, it is good. Well with my soul. Is that you? Faith, hope. Faith, love, and hope, they act as your armor against drunkenness and darkness, against sin and falsehood. Faith looks back to what Christ has done. Christ finished, accomplished work. Hope looks forward to what Christ will most certainly do in the future. And love builds us up in the present. What do we do in the present? Uh, If you want to know where are we going for the rest of this little short mini-series, read the rest of the chapter. Love builds us up while we wait. While we wait for Christ, we love one another. I was so encouraged by the text message, and you have to forgive me. Yesterday, uh, myself and Scott were going back and forth trying to figure out how to spell Ralph's last name. Finally, he was able to track down, I don't know how many hospitals he called, but he tracked down Ralph. Sent a message to all the guys. Here's Ralph's name. Here's Ralph's uh, number of the uh, room that he's staying in. Give him a call. What a, what a loving thing to do. He didn't have to do that. We could have all just said, yeah, I'm praying for you. But to go the extra mile. To show an extra act of love. It's what we, it's what we do while we wait. If our faith is resting in Christ's finished work, looking at His death and resurrection in the past, and, and our hope is in Christ set on his return that he will accomplish and will do. And if we are diligent in loving God and loving one another, then we can confidently say, I'm awake. I am armed. When temptation promises joy and satisfaction, we can look at that temptation and say, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't need you. I found satisfaction in Christ and nothing else will suffice. I'm at rest in Him. And and I also take pleasure in obedience. I, I won't be at rest if I disobey and if I sin. No matter how attractive the world tries to make disobedience and sin, I won't find joy there. It's not there. Not in food, not in drink, not in possessions, not in passions. Only in Christ. And in saying that, brothers and sisters, know this. I think we've made it clear. We're not legalists either. Eat, drink, have possessions. Have your passions, but do so for the glory of God. And don't cross his lines. I say to you in closing of this point, sin is a lie. Christ is true. Sin is a lie. Christ is true. No matter what Satan offers to you, it won't be better than anything that Christ gives. Never, ever, ever. Let's go now to our final and last point, awaiting. 
This will be very short. Awaiting. What hope is, what is our hope in life and in death, brothers and sisters? What is our comfort in life and in death? It is this. And Paul says it. God has not destined us for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Uh, May I say to you very slowly and again. You have not been destined for wrath. What a glorious eternal truth that is. You have not been destined for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us. That's our hope. That's our comfort. I'm not headed toward wrath when I die. I'm headed toward comfort in Christ, and it will be eternal. We are destined. That is the place that we have been placed upon, the path that we've been placed upon. The path, not of judgment and and destruction, but a path of salvation. God has picked you up, put you on that path. And you are headed toward glory. You've been placed on the narrow road that Christ speaks of. Christ puts you there so that you might live in him. We know that God has not destined us for judgment because God sent his son to, the, to deliver us from destruction. We are saved from the wrath to come. We shall be raised and gathered together with Christ in the air, Paul says. We will be judged not with the wicked. But with the righteous, Christ is coming to rescue us and to bring us home. Just as Joseph said, God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this place. Paul reminds us that we will be with him. So whether you are awake, alive now, or asleep, those who are past, you will live with him. Christ is coming so that you and I might be with him. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the fullness of our salvation, which is the guarantee, the down payment of our salvation. Faith and hope and love, they direct us to Christ. They remind us of what he has done, what he will do. And they should sustain you and keep you until that glorious return. We hope for Christ to bring us salvation in light of what he has done in the past. We love one another. And we build each other up until he comes. There is wrath to come. It's coming. But God has not destined you to experience that wrath. You are not on the path of destruction. For some, sudden destruction will come. Those who were not in the ark, they did not survive. And those who are not in Christ, they too will not survive. I ask you in closing... What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? How will you greet the Lord when he returns? Will you say joy to the world? Our Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Or will you say, as Dustin mentioned earlier, as the book of Revelation says, woe is me. Let the mountains fall on me for earth has received her king. Will it be a joyous greeting or a dreadful greeting when Christ returns? This is, saints, the last hour. But it's still the hour. That's good news. Mercy and forgiveness are still within reach. They're still available right now. It's still, it's the last hour, but it's still the hour. So what are you waiting for? Are you asleep? Are you drunk? Then wake up. Turn to Christ now, today. Come to Christ in faith. He will be a perfect Savior for you. Paul has commanded the church twice now. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Do we need encouragement? Do you? Do you need encouragement? Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Look at the world around us. The nation, the state, the country. County, all these things may discourage us. But none of those things take away from the beautiful truths of Christ. His death, his resurrection, 
His ascension to the Father's right hand. His promise to return. We have been destined to obtain salvation through Christ. Who saves us from the wrath to come. So be encouraged. That we will obtain salvation through Christ who died for us so that we might live with him. I encourage you as you go home this afternoon. Read the rest of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's a short chapter. See where we're going. See some of the things that Paul commands and encourages as we wait for the return of Christ. Don't wait for the next Lord's Day to find out what, what you should be doing. Read it. I pray that God will give us grace in these next few weeks to walk through this final chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray.